Hey, Eventfolio voice listeners, you're back, and I'm so glad you are for a super informative episode featuring Dr. Tanner Sleed and sponsored by Hills. I remember in vet school, one of my mentors, who was a criticalist, gave us a lecture on the acute abdomen, and his words were something to the effect of, the abdomen is the most important part of the body because it contains the kidneys. He also was the one to help spearhead the hemodialysis program at the University of Florida, so kidneys were quite important to him. And because of him, I'm always very conscious never to say kidney failure, as he made sure we understood that the kidneys never fail, and to use appropriate terminology like acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease. Anyhow, for this episode, we're focusing on congenital renal disorders, and I found it super informative because when I think of kidney disease in young animals, I tend to kind of lump it all under kidney dysplasia, but it turns out there's really a spectrum of congenital kidney disorders, and dysplasia is only one form of congenital kidney disease. Dr. Sleed does an amazing job of breaking it down for us, and I would love to have him back again sometime to pick his brain more about kidneys and how to most effectively manage kidney disease in our patients. Dr. Tanner Sleed is a fellow in advanced urinary procedures and extracorporeal therapies at North Carolina State University College of Veterinary Medicine. He graduated from Kansas State College of Veterinary Medicine and went on to pursue a small animal rotating internship at Purdue University and a residency in small animal internal medicine at North Carolina State University. He's a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine with a focus on nephrology and urology and interventional medicine. Let's go ahead and get into our episode. All right, guys, we are back for this episode with Dr. Tanner Sleed to talk about congenital renal disorders. And I'm excited to talk about this subject because I learned a lot just in our first phone call where we touched base about some new emerging data about congenital renal disorders. So Dr. Sleed, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yes. So happy to have you on the podcast. So when we talk about congenital renal disorders, I know my brain instantly goes to renal dysplasia. As a matter of fact, when we first started this conversation, I was kind of curious as to why we were talking about renal disorders and the subject wasn't renal dysplasia. So can you remind us exactly what renal dysplasia is and why there's just kind of more to the story than this one specific diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. So renal dysplasia is actually a term that we're kind of moving away from. And so there's this paradigm shift to the terms juvenile onset chronic kidney disease or juvenile onset CKD and juvenile nephropathy. And that's just because what was previously called renal dysplasia is probably more of a spectrum of diseases. And these diseases are really loosely defined as pretty much any degenerative or developmental chronic renal disease without evidence of inflammation in young animals. So usually less than two years. Sometimes clinical signs don't become more apparent until later in life, but ultimately it is a spectrum of diseases. Rather than this one specific pathology being renal dysplasia. Exactly. And so lots of people were taught or have heard of or have discussed this old paper 
I guess not necessarily that old, but older paper in Goldens with ugly kidneys and scarring on biopsy. And that was termed renal dysplasia. And that's just kind of been translated to a lot of other breeds. And that's probably a very specific genotype instead of a, a representation of all of these young animals with chronic kidney disease. And I would agree. I mean, I think I was doing the exact same thing of saying, you know, a young animal with CKD equals renal dysplasia when that's really not the case at all. So I'm glad right. that we're here talking about this to kind of clear that up and, yeah. and get the terminology right here. Mm -hmm. What can cause a pet to suffer from juvenile onset renal disease? That's a good question. And in most cases, the pathogenesis really isn't known and is ultimately a diagnosis of exclusion. And so there are a few breeds in which true renal dysplasia is, is well characterized along with a couple of known hereditary glomerular diseases, better termed hereditary nephropathies. But most of what we see clinically are manifestations of renal maldevelopment or abnormal differentiation of the actual renal parenchyma and those nephrons. And then sometimes even a renal insult that occurred early in life. And so it's not a, an across the board specific change for every single animal that has kidney dysfunction when they're born. Okay. That makes sense. What are, what types of renal insults might an animal encounter when they are very young? That's a good question. And again, something that we don't necessarily know, it's entirely presumptive, but we know plenty of animals at birth can become hypotensive. Occasionally they'll develop gastroenteritis, vomiting and diarrhea shortly after being born. Sometimes they can get ascending UTIs around that time. And then of course, lepto and toxins and all of the other kind of differentials for acute kidney injuries can absolutely happen in really young animals, but may just be difficult to pick up on. Sure. That makes sense. You know, kind of another reason why we need to handle these guys with kid gloves when they're, when they're really young like that, because they can just be set off by so many different things. Yeah, exactly. Do we know how common it is to see pets with this condition with juvenile onset kidney disease? We really don't know how common it is right now. There's, again, some, some studies or some case series in, in certain types of breeds. And so I know from my clinical impression, I definitely see a lot more of those Goldens or labs that have some degree of juvenile onset chronic kidney disease. But again, since it's, it's more of a spectrum of diseases, sometimes maybe even a combination of that maldevelopment and so, some sort of renal insult, right now we, we just don't know. And that may change as we have better terminology and people are more aware of the different spectrum of diseases that fall within this umbrella. That's interesting that you're seeing it in kind of the labs and the goldens makes me a little sad. I have, I have my lab, which I talk about all the time on the podcast, yeah, my yeah. big goofball. Do you think, you know, seeing it in these labs and these goldens, is that a variation of like this renal dysplasia or just kind of a coincidence? I think it's, yeah, it's, they're probably their own variation. And so that is one of those breeds that I mentioned that has been a little bit better characterized in terms of having true renal maldevelopment based off of numerous renal biopsies that have been performed in that breed with similar changes on histopathology. So yeah, that, that is probably a, a breed specific flavor of this disease spectrum. Interesting. And it sounds like there's just a whole lot to learn here. And, and this whole diagnosis is going to get more and more interesting as time goes on. Yeah, definitely. All right. So let's talk about diagnosing these guys. What types of diagnostics should we use to diagnose juvenile onset renal disease? That's a great question. And so initially there's got to be an index of suspicion for these cases. And usually they're PUPD or exhibiting some sort of behavior that's abnormal for a puppy. But following that, the hallmark is really the low USG with an elevated urine protein creatinine ratio. 
plus or minus azotemia, true azotemia, and other known sequela of chronic kidney disease like hypertension, anemia, hyperphosphatemia, etc. And in really young animals, can we see just low specific gravities? Can that be an age-related thing that we see? Yeah, so it's it's entirely dependent on hydration status of the animal at the time that we take that USG. And so that's a really good question. And that's why it's important to note that one, there is variation. And two, oftentimes we do need to see these animals back. So just finding a single USG that's really low, yeah, we 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 can't make a diagnosis off of that. But if you have other consistent changes with kidney disease or the patient is also dehydrated on physical exam, then that would be something that's abnormal and worth tracking. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Cause I was trying to go like, you know, I, we don't always see these animals that are super, super young, but mm-hmm. you know, going back and going, I, I feel like sometimes they just are a little dilute on their, on their USG, but right. that makes sense. Just kind of an indication to keep an eye on them and continue to monitor that. Right. And I think another thing that's important to note with those same young animals is that one renal values may be falsely decreased due to low muscle mass. And that's where I think it's a good plug to talk about SDMA because that is less affected by muscle mass. And so sometimes that in combination with, you know, a low USG protein in their urine, and then often structural changes on ultrasound are quite supportive because ultimately these are diseases that must be diagnosed with a biopsy. But lots of times, again, we can find that combination of clinical pathologic changes that make us really confident in a diagnosis of juvenile onset disease. Yes. And please keep reminding at least me of that, because I always forget about creatinine and muscle mass. And You know, I look at that number and I go, oh, you know, it's, it's high, it's low, whatever it is. And I forget to correlate that with muscle mass. So thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of talked about muscle mass and creatinine and how that can create some variabilities. Are there other pitfalls we should be aware of that we might encounter when we're trying to diagnose this condition or even maybe when we're not trying to diagnose this condition, are there subtle indicators that we should be aware of because we might miss them if we're not looking? Yeah, I think one of the biggest takeaways or or things to be thinking about, not only for really every disease, but especially kidney disease, is that we expect fluctuation, right? So our kidneys are changing their water balance, changing our electrolytes every second of every single day. And it's the same for those clinical pathologic changes that we're tracking with kidney disease. And so especially with SDMA, like I mentioned before, it's just one of the parameters that we monitor, but really we need to establish a persistent elevation. And I actually think that there was a study that came out fairly recently that said, you know, individual variation is probably more important than the reference ranges that we are given. And so sometimes, for instance, say you get an SDMA that's a couple points outside of the reference range, if it stays at that level for many months, then it's probably less clinically significant than one that is increasing over that same amount of time, even if it's within the reference range. And so the same thing goes with hypertension. We need multiple checks to ensure that that's actually happening. And then a big one and kind of a soapbox of mine is the diagnosis of proteinuria in general. And so for a lot of these cases, right, they're going to have dilute urine. And so even still, we'll see, you know, one plus two plus protein on their dipstick. And while that is often consistent with true proteinuria, I always recommend actually performing a true urine protein to creatinine ratio, because not only does that help us quantify it, but also that gives us a really specific indicator of often severity. And sometimes it even helps us localize where in the nephron the kidney is diseased. 
Absolutely. It gives you that quantifiable parameter to monitor and, and see where we're at with everything. Yeah, exactly. I'm so glad you said that about the SDMA because that's always my question when I'm checking SDMA is, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with SDMA yeah. because yeah. so many times it, it'll it come back elevated and I'm like, but I really feel like this patient is normal. Right. Of course, making sure to correlate that with my urine-specific gravity and, and your analysis findings. But I really like what you said there about the the trends over time, seeing mm -hmm. what's normal for that individual animal. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sometimes these cases will... So say we decide that an SDMA is truly elevated, those are the same cases that may just have a subset of m more mild disease that may never actually become truly azotemic, or at least not in the short term. And so I think the the biggest takeaway is not to hang our hat on any one of these single, you know, lab errors or lab abnormalities, I should say. Sure, sure. I think always good advice. It's always a good reminder to watch the trends and, and like you said, not get too hung up on one single number. Right. So thinking of the couple of cases of juvenile kidney disease that I've seen, I, the last one I diagnosed was, it was on pre-anesthetic blood work for a spay. Okay. And sure enough, I can't remember all the details of the case, but it did come back with, with true kidney disease. In general, because we're talking about young animals, what are the implications for like spay neuter and other elective anesthetic procedures? That's a really good question. And I think I will have to hedge a tiny bit, but in general, you know, it, it depends on the severity of the disease. And I think one of the, one of the takeaways that I would like people to be aware of, at least with this subset of congenital kidney diseases or juvenile onset kidney diseases is that just because we diagnose this disease doesn't mean that we can never perform any sort of elective procedure. And so sometimes those that are severely affected at a really young age, like maybe the dog that you got the pre-op blood work on, and it's already severely azotemic, sure, you might be able to say, you know, the lifespan may be significantly decreased. Maybe we don't have the monitoring tools to undergo anesthesia safely. So maybe it is best to hold off. But alternatively, the less severe phenotypes can probably undergo anesthesia with good monitoring, because a lot of these patients can live for a really long time, just kind of hanging out with moderate azotemia. And I certainly have recommended it in, in these patients before. I think I had your voice in my head the other day when I was anesthetizing a patient that was like, stage one kidney disease is not a contraindication for anesthesia as long as there's appropriate monitoring. And I was like, all right, here we go. Let's do this. And that patient ended up doing great. Right, exactly. And it's always weighing the pros and cons, right? So I think one that I always think about is I had this juvenile onset chronic kidney disease, Golden, who you know, had been hanging out at a creatinine of about between two and three, never clinical for it, but constantly getting recurrent UTIs because it had a severely hooded vulva. And, you know, in that case, the quality of life and potentially quantity of life limiting factor was the UTIs. Meanwhile, it does have juvenile onset CKD. So even still, I recommended having the vulvoplasty performed and the patient did great. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense of these UTIs are certainly not helping the kidney disease. Right. Exactly. So when we're managing these patients, are there any special considerations we can keep in mind since they're so young, or are we pro approaching these similarly to how we would approach any animal with chronic kidney disease? Yeah, so the kidneys are grossly indistinguishable from animals with adult onset chronic kidney disease, just as with this juvenile onset. And so because of that management really almost is the exact same with dietary therapy being the hallmark, along with regular monitoring for staging or substaging and treatment of sequela with things like phosphorus binders, 
antihypertensives or antiproteinuric medications, and then sometimes EPO stimulators. But I, I like what you mentioned about the young ones and that the important distinction is that many of these patients are diagnosed before skeletal maturity. And so these are dogs that we want to avoid heavy protein restriction until they mature. And what I often recommend to allow their kidneys a diet that's going to be a little bit safer for them, but without heavily protein restricting is oftentimes these goals can be accomplished with geriatric diets that are usually adequately phosphorus and salt restricted, but provide enough protein for growth. But ultimately, again, just as important for management. And oftentimes I will recommend working with a nutritionist to kind of determine the best diet for each dog, if you have that available. That makes a lot of sense. The more I learn about kidney diets and protein restriction, the more complicated it kind of gets. So absolutely, I would love the input of a veterinary nutritionist in that regard, because I think, and I may be completely off base here, but I think what I'm learning is that the protein restriction is generally in an effort to reduce phosphorus and you can't reduce the phosphorus without reducing the protein but kidney diets more and more are trying to be less protein restricted and just protein restricted enough to restrict the phosphorus. Is that, is that kind of along the right lines there? Yeah, basically. So we're finding that phosphorus is playing a much bigger role in the progression of chronic kidney disease or really any kidney disease at a much earlier in the timeline of progression than, than something like protein in general. And so at, at some point in the progression of disease, you know, all of the electrolytes in the diet are important, but yes, you're exactly right. That phosphorus is the, is the big limiting factor or the important factor. And protein is actually probably protective or, or helpful for animals with mild or, or early disease. Yeah. And I always struggle with that in my renal patients with mm-hmm. losing muscle mass and stuff like that. So I could imagine just being an extra challenge with a young animal, trying to keep them in good body condition. Yeah, exactly. And so sometimes things that I'll recommend, you know, if, if they can, o- if they only have access to, to a true renal diet, or they still want to give some sort of protein source, I do often recommend things like egg whites or salmon as that protein source that are just a little bit easier on the kidneys and still provide that protein and sometimes provide protective factors like those fatty acids. Gosh, like so many variables to it. I feel like I remember when I first graduated, it was like, you have kidney disease. And so we do these things. And just the more and more I learn about how the different body systems, the different nutrients there, they all are at play with each other here. And it's just the more interesting it becomes. Yeah, super interesting. And sometimes a little bit concerning because you wonder yeah. if in 10 years, we're going to be saying the opposite of what we're saying now. But I mean, that's just, you know, the importance of keeping up with especially the kidney stuff, because I agree, they're constantly changing their recommendations. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thinking of a true renal dysplasia, and typically a diagnosis of renal dysplasia is is sad because it carries a really poor prognosis. But as you've kind of mentioned, that's not always the case with these juvenile onset kidney disease cases. So what do we know about the prognosis for this wider spectrum of diseases? Yeah, that's a great question because I know I certainly was taught that renal dysplasia, quote unquote, was kind of a death sentence, especially in veterinary school. But now that we're again approaching this as more of a spectrum of diseases and renal maldevelopment and really this juvenile onset being the only really distinguishing factor, it's just not that case anymore. And so I mentioned earlier, there's that one study that outlines the prognosis associated with renal dysplasia in young Goldens and their median survival time was, was pretty short. And I think that that has been falsely translated to every other animal that has kidney dysfunction at, as a young age. But again, that's just really not true. And so, you know, 
anecdotally, just as with higher stages of chronic kidney disease, puppies that are already biochemically azotemic and clinically affected probably have a worse prognosis overall. But some, some of these dogs are, are more tolerant to azotemia with few clinical signs. And I certainly have seen those same dogs hang out with you know, moderate azotemia for multiple years, all the while feeling good. And so again, it's just, it's not a death sentence anymore. And that, that may be a reflection of better monitoring or management strategies nowadays, but just doesn't necessarily mean that when you see gross kidneys or have an azotemic young animal, you have to have a tearful talk with the owners. It's really just about relaying the expectations of really close monitoring. And I feel like you're reminding me of something that, you know, another thing I feel like I'm constantly being reminded of, constantly relearning that we're there to treat our patients, not to treat the numbers. So even if they are moderately azotemic, I mean, nobody wants to see that on blood work, but if you have a patient who's running around and eating and drinking, there's going to be individual variation in the tolerance level for that azotemia. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes these are kind of the dumb, happy little labs or goldens that <laughs> otherwise they, they're just motivated by food and playing and walks. And, you know, they can do that for a long time. It's just a matter of catching the, the sequela when, when they're present and, and treating them, because just as with chronic kidney disease, it's all about slowing the progression. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Sleed, this has been a fascinating talk, and I hope we can talk more about you know, kidneys, whether it's juvenile or, you know, some of the other developments with chronic kidney disease, because it's something we see so commonly and the more tools we have to monitor and treat this and help our patients do well, all the better. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with everybody? I mean, I think those are the biggest takeaways, right? You know, I think kidney disease can be um, a little bit intimidating, but just as our opinions are changing so much that it just means we're getting more and more management strategies to keep these guys feeling good for longer. And the same is true with juvenile onset disease. I love that. I love that. Well, the idea of, you know, a young lab with kidneys that are in indistinguishable from an older CKD patient makes me sad, but the fact that we're learning more about this and it's no longer a death sentence and we're getting more and more tools for management, I think is you know, just amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And then I did want to plug, there is the Atlas of Renal Lesions that's on the Ohio State University website that does actually even have an algorithm for juvenile onset chronic kidney disease. And that's a really great resource that I think, especially when you have an index of suspicion for these things, whether you're considering a biopsy or not. Oh, actually, I love an algorithm. I feel like it's right? just you know, puts everything, answers so many questions. Yeah. So that's an awesome resource. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Well, did you guys learn something about congenital kidney disease? I know I definitely did. Hopefully I'm not the only one. Dr. Sleed, thank you so much for joining us. What a great talk. And thank you to Hills for sponsoring this episode. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.